Like so many of you who love music and had hopes of someday performing in front of thousands of screaming fans and touring the world, meet Keith Howland. His path to the music business began with those very same dreams that eventually became his reality. In the early 80s, when Keith attended James Madison University, he caught a Chicago concert on campus, and it turned out to be one of the best performances he's ever witnessed. After the show, he remembers catching a glimpse of Chicago guitarist Chris Pennick and thought to himself, that's the luckiest guy in the world. I wish I could get a gig like that. His wish eventually came true, but not before paying his dues and working his way into the audition that eventually changed his entire career. Here to tell us about this incredible journey to the band Chicago is Keith Howland. Hey, Keith, welcome to Inside Music Cast. Hey, great to be here. Yeah. Hey, Keith, you know, our, our listeners know the music of Chicago really well, and, and probably the same for the rest of the world. And, and you know, a couple of decades <laughs> ago, you know, you took the role of lead guitar in the band. And, and can you briefly tell us about, you know, your first experience of, of, of going to a Chicago show? I mean, it, I think it was... I think we read somewhere it was back in 75, but I guess you kind of describe it in an interesting way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, okay. So, uh, you know, I grew up in sort of a musical household. Um, Neither one of my parents were musicians, but my older brother was a drummer. Mm -hmm. And he was taking drum lessons from this drum instructor who um, told him about Danny Serafin Uh and basically gave him Chicago 2 and then a a uh, a book that had you know a lot of the Danny Serpent's drum parts notated, and he was learning um, to play Danny's parts. Uh-huh. So he brought that record home in, in quadraphonic, and we sat down and we listened to it, and you know our lives were never the same. Yeah, um, immediately went out and bought CTA. You know, I think we were aware of maybe beginnings, or does anybody really know what time it is? But that <laughs> kind of started it, and. Um, and basically, you know, we became big fans uh, of the group and um, that, yeah, somewhere around 1975, 74, the band came to uh, the Capitol Center in D.C. I was growing up uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And so we went to the concert and um, that was the tour. Uh, Terry Kath had the, the big octagonal speaker cabinet that had lights in it behind <laughs> him and they had a lot of neon lights on stage and and um but anyway so it was the it was the original lineup and you know it was it was an incredible show but the part of it that i remember the most was that um you know i think i was probably 10 or 11 years old and really uh yeah and that that the, the, the the dudes sitting in front of us were passing a joint back and forth, right? <laughs> and, and, and when we got home from the concert, my whole face and neck were broken out in this massive rash. <laughs> and, and my mother came to me and she said, now you see, son, those marijuana cigarettes, you're allergic to them. So don't you ever smoke those. And I, of course, you know, about three years later, I, I proved to myself that that was not indeed the case. Um, I had actually gotten into a, a patch of poison oak like earlier in the day that day and gotten my hands in it and gotten it on my face. So it was actually you know, totally unrelated, or, totally unrelated. <laughs> but she she tried, you know, as a parent to make me think uh Twice about that, but uh, you never know. That's yeah. they, that's what they could have been smoking was the poison oak. Poison oak. You that's know. right. You, you, you could. You know what? Hey, <laughs> back in those days, right? Anybody would try to smoke pretty much anything. <laughs> that's that's right. right. See yeah. what see what happened. But but uh, yeah, man, it was a it was an incredible concert. 
Um, unfortunately, it was the only time I got to see Terry Kath uh, live mm-hmm. with the band, and you know he was just mind-numbingly good. Amazing. Um, I saw the band yeah. several times with Donnie Dacus. Yeah, yeah. Um, several times with Chris Pinnock. Right. Uh, saw him with Dwayne. I, I saw the band in pretty much every incarnation. Wow. wow. Was the guitar your first instrument that you played? Was the guitar what you picked up first? Yeah, and the funny part of that is is that the only reason I played guitar was because my brother played the drums. Yeah, um, okay. And our next-door neighbor was also a guitar player. Uh-huh. So in my seven-year-old mind, I thought there were only two instruments, guitar and drums. <laughs> and so I went, well, see, now, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have picked up the bass. <laughs> because then we, w- we would have had a trio. Exactly right. Right. But instead, I just went, well, I can't play drums because my brother does in this. Yeah. My next door neighbor plays guitar, so I'll play that. And <laughs> Was your brother a good drummer? Happened. Was your brother a decent drummer? My brother's a great drummer. Really? I've always joked with him and told him that he's the, he's the best non-professional drummer that I know. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. Yeah. We actually made a record together. Yeah. Um, yeah, the record called Key Craig. Yeah. That's right. Which is, uh, yeah, that was me and my brother. We we jammed for about an hour at my house over Thanksgiving one year, literally freeform guitar and drums, and and then I wound up taking that and chopping it up and adding bass and keyboards and turned it into a record. Yeah, yeah. We'll be talking about that in just a couple of seconds. But, uh, you know, oh, okay. in, in this time, when, you know, you're 10 years old or just a you know few years later on, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, well, we all know what IBM stands for. Of course, it's, it stands for I Been Moved. And uh, yep. it happened to you because you guys moved to Virginia uh, in the early 70s. And was that a tough move for you? Was uh, as during the high school, junior high time or whatever? Yeah, interestingly enough, um, like I said, I, I was born and raised sort of in, in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, right yeah. outside of D.C. And then, north, yeah. Yeah, and then right around junior high school, I think I was in sixth grade, we moved mm-hmm. to Roanoke, Virginia. And um, I was there for most of my junior high school years. And then we moved to Richmond. Um, and that's kind of where we stuck. He got offered another promotion, but didn't want to take us out of high school. So um, he refused that, that particular promotion, but, yeah. um, but you know, it was, uh, in Roanoke, actually, I was in my first horn band, <laughs> which really? ironically enough, it, it was a trio. It was myself, my brother and a trumpet player. Okay. So <laughs> how's that for a, Guitar that for a band? And a trumpet player. I love it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and we were doing some Chicago tunes. Really? We were doing it. Oh yeah, there's there's versions of me out there somewhere on tape singing beginnings in my best Robert Lamb impersonation. Amazing, that's great. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, tell us. Everybody gets into this music business or a band business, uh, you know, because of meeting someone or the most influential person that comes across or crosses their path. Um, who was it for you? Was it your brother Craig that uh, was the the one of uh, the main influences that got you into this whole thing, or was there anybody else in the peripheral? You know what? I really do think that uh, my brother was was really instrumental. Like I said, mm-hmm. he was four years older than me, so I started playing the guitar when I was seven. Yeah. Um, and then somewhere around the like seventy six, seventy seven ish, you know, I was going down the road of uh, Ted Nugent, Kiss. Um, yeah, uh, we liked Chicago. I was a big Carpenters fan. Um, but uh, I was definitely going down the road of the hard rock 
thing. Really? And mm-hmm. my brother decided that that it would be in my best interest every Christmas to go out to the record store and give me for Christmas records that he didn't think that I would buy on my own, but that I should hear. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And this included Toto's first record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Beck, Blow by Blow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I believe uh, one of the early, one of the first Steve Perry Journey records. Okay. Um, so he turned me on to Steve Lukather, Jeff Beck, and Neil Sean in like <laughs> one year. That's amazing. You know, there you which go. <laughs> definitely <laughs> set me. He turned me on to Larry Carlton. He was listening yeah. to, you know, the Crusaders and Earth, Wind, and Fire and yeah. uh, Chick Corea. And although I have the dubious distinction of being the one who turned him on to Steve Gadd. Ah, uh, really? Which, okay. Interestingly enough, <laughs> I was oh. taking jazz guitar lessons from a from a teacher in Roanoke, and he gave me Chick Corea's The Leprechaun for okay. Uh, and I looked at him and I said, "There's yeah. not even a guitar player on this. What am I going <laughs> to listen to this for?" Exactly. Yeah. And he said, "Well, go check out Chick's phrasing and soloing and the way he way he phrases and and just check it out." And I remember listening to the song Night Sprite which is mm-hmm. this, you know, up-tempo thing and with Gad on drums, Anthony Jackson. Yeah. And up to this point, my brother was like just a Danny Seraphin freak, right? And I, yeah. I listened to that and I said, hey, Craig, um, you might want to listen to this guy, Steve Gad. I, I, <laughs> I think he sounds like he's pretty good. And that started him on like this, you know, never-ending search for every record Steve Gad played on. Yeah. Every wow. single record. Wow. And my little brother... Bought. And my little brother turned me on to him. <laughs> yeah, so I got to return the favor, sort of, because cool. he became a gad freak. He bought the black piano, yep. yeah. uh, piano black Yamaha kit, and grew his hair like Steve. And <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> you cool. know, but uh, that's the things we do, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think you, you attended James Madison University, and I was curious: did you go there for music, or w- or were you there for like computer science or something like that? I actually was a computer science yeah. major when I got there. Yep. Kind of following in dad's footsteps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I had not thought one iota of any inkling that I would play music for a living. Uh-huh. You know, mm. it's just something that I did. I was in bands in high school and junior mm. high school. And then I got to college and I was in like three different bands, one of which I had uh, uh, my roommate at the time at JMU was Lance Morrison, who plays bass with Don Henley. He played with Rod Stewart. He's done lots of session work. He was on Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. But anyway, so, you know, Lance and I were, neither one of us thought we were going to ever make a living out of music. We, um, but we played in a bunch of different bands. I was in one pop band that did a lot of uh, Journey and Police and Missing Persons and uh, that kind of stuff with a female vocalist, um, with a great drummer. and then I was in an R&B band that did a lot of Motown and that kind of stuff, which was, you know, really, really probably key because I had to go back and learn all these, you know, Motown tunes. So that kind of put some some R&B chops in my rhythm playing that probably yeah. wouldn't have been there otherwise. You yeah. know, so you don't really realize when you're doing this kind of stuff what's putting you firmly in place for what's to come upon you. Right, right. You know, because one of the things that I think cemented the Chicago gig for me was is that I was very 
steeped in their music. I was also very steeped in Terry Kath's playing. I did have some R&B in me. I dabbled in jazz, which they all dabbled in. Yeah. And um, But I also got heavily into the Steve Lukather, Mike Landau school of 80s guitar. Yep. Um, yeah. So I had all those sounds and all that stuff that was on the Foster records. Right, right. Exactly. So, you know, exactly. we'd sit there and play in the audition. We're playing, does anybody really know what time it is? And 25 or 64 and Saturday in the park. And then all of a sudden we're playing, you're the inspiration of Hard Habit to Break. And I went from sounding like a 70s guitar player to an 80s guitar player. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, we're kind of like, oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? While you were at James Madison, I think it was 82, uh, you were a student there, and, and Chicago came to town uh, to do a gig there. And uh, I, I read somewhere that, you know, after the show, you saw Chris Pinnock backstage. And uh, tell us what you were thinking when you saw Chris and what was going through your mind. Well, first of all, let me say this, that um, – you know, they came around, and then this was early in the Chicago 16 tour. Mm-hmm, right. I think Hard to Say I'm Sorry was just starting to catch a little bit of a run on on radio. Yep. Yeah. And the, the band was, they were on the road with a purpose. They were trying to reestablish themselves. Right. And that's why they were playing colleges and, and different smaller venues and yeah. things like that. And, you know, Bill was new. Peter was at the top of his game. Danny was great. I mean, that blew my mind, and and Pinnock's guitar playing just ripped my face off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I was just just devastated. That whole concert, everything about it, even even the the I don't know who was mixing front of house or 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 what was going on, but the sound was just pristine and powerful and. Wow. It was nuts, man. And I, you know, I, I left that concert thinking that's the best Chicago concert I've ever seen. Wow. I mean, that, that literally trumped everything I'd seen previously. Wow. Uh, I'm sorry, we don't want to get political here. I didn't mean to say Trump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, but uh, so, yeah, you know, I was a fan. I was outside the convocation center where they just played and I was trying to get a glimpse of anybody. Yeah. You know, and two things happened. I saw, I saw through the double glass doors. I saw Chris Pinnock walking around, right, smoking a cigarette. And I looked down and I thought to myself, man, you know, there's the luckiest guy in the world right there. Yeah. And he yeah. has the coolest gig. You know, I wish I had that gig, you know. Yeah. And it, it just, that was the thought <laughs> I had. And then the second thing that happened was they finally got in the vans um, to leave, which, you know, at the time I thought, oh, wow, you know, where are these, you know, why aren't they getting in a bus or where? You know, now I realize that a lot of times you're shuttling in vans back and forth to a hotel or right. whatever you're doing. But mm-hmm. but Satara hopped in the uh, front passenger side of the van, right? And uh, I, I, with everything I could muster, I walked up and I, I kind of looked at him through the window. <laughs> he he, you know, back then pre um, electric windows, he <laughs> cranks the the handle <laughs> and cranks the window down, and he goes, "Hey man, what's happening?" And all I could think to say <laughs> was. How do you sing so high? <laughs> and he just he just kind of looked at me, kind of raised his eyebrows, and he said, "It's it's just my voice, man." And then rolled the window up, and I like I felt like Chris Farley in those uh, yeah. Saturday Night Live. Stupid, I was like, stupid. Oh my god, stupid. I can't believe I said that. I'm so stupid. I blew it. You know, and I just walked away. That was my opportunity to say something to Peter Cetera. And all I said was, how do you sing so high? You know? 
I don't know what kind of uh, knowledge he thought he or I thought he was going to bestow upon me, but uh, he basically just rolled the window up in my face and drove away. <laughs> Good job, kid. So, yeah, yeah, you know, Eddie and I, Eddie and I originally had one question for you, and it was, "How do you play so good?" And that was that was all we had. That's all we had, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's just what I do. <laughs> it's just what you do, man. <laughs> That's great. Hey, was there was there a time that uh, that you and your brother I, we uh, read somewhere that uh, you guys were, um, you know, helping run uh, a sound reinforcement company? Were you guys running sound um, somewhere? What was that? Yeah, the facts on that are slightly askew. That was actually my my buddy Lance. And Lance, I. Yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when we first. Uh, graduated from college, we moved back to Richmond, Virginia. We got a got a townhouse together, and we were we were like, well, what what are we gonna do? You know, we got our degrees, and neither one of us wanted to go get a real job, mm-hmm. so we were going, you know, oh, maybe we'll open a recording studio, and and uh, we started looking into that, and that was going to be a pretty expensive proposition, and so well, how about we run sound, start a sound company, and and start running sound for bands. So we we went out with some some loans we took out from our parents <laughs> believe it or not and we went and we bought our we bought ourselves a uh, a Meyer uh, PA system which is uh-huh. you know at the time was like the top of the line uh, sure. I think the Grateful Dead was the first band that started using Meyer yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway you know this stuff was like super high end and we just started running sound for bands and, and also for our, for our own band um, in clubs around town and we were just like you know, first thing we do, we go and you know, start with the kick drum and we get that going to where it was, you know, knocking the glass out of the club and then build, build a mix from there. You know, yeah, we yeah. were, we were out of control, but, um, but it wasn't too long, uh, after doing that, we both got a phone call from, uh, a former JMU buddy of ours, a guy named Brad Henderson. He, he refers to himself as bad Brad, but, uh, <laughs> and he's, he's still floating around. And Brad is a monster <laughs> guitar player. He's uh-huh. he's killer. He was in a rival band in college, yeah. and and he calls us and um, and he goes he goes, dude, you got to come out to Hollywood. And <laughs> we're like, well, what's going on, Brad? And he's like, dude, I'm going to this school. It's called GIT. It's like really cool, man. Wow. It's a one year program, and you know, and we're, we're going, wow. Here's an excuse to go to L.A. Yeah. And go back to school for a year, but for music. <laughs> so you know, in an effort to avoid the real world as much as possible, yeah. we we went to L.A. And even then, we still weren't necessarily thinking being professional musicians. Yeah, we just yeah. thought, right? Well, let's go hang out in L.A. and see what that scene is, and then <laughs> go to school. So we did that, and I'll tell you what the the schooling I got during that year, yeah was less going to GIT and more of the fact that it was like Mm -hmm. 1987-ish. And every Sunday night at the Baked Potato was was either – it was either Steve Lukather or Mike Landau. <laughs> right. It was either Greg Matheson or Los Lobotomies. It was either Jeff Procaro or Carlos Vega. Yeah. Jimmy Johnson or John Pena, Brandon yeah. Fields or Larry Klimas, and all these different cross-pollinations of these bands. Right. But to go sit in that little tiny room <laughs> every yep. Sunday night and have your brain just fried watching these guys play, right. 
you know, that all of a sudden became the bar I was reaching for. It was like, well, I want to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Lukather was already, you know, a huge hero of mine. And so was Landau. Yeah. But to get to see him in that environment, you know, was just incredible uh, lessons in music and 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 lessons in groove. Exactly. Yeah. Well, when when you arrived out there in LA, you got a, a gig with uh, Andy Brower, Studio Reynolds, and and you were doing uh, Cartage for you know like the A list studio musicians, and of course, one of the guys that you know you were you were working with was was Luke. And uh, in doing so, did you get to know him pretty well, or was it merely all business? Oh, absolutely. And the real chronology of it, though, was um, the year I was at GIT uh-huh. and going to the baked potato. That was that was sort of first. Uh-huh. And then I went and got a job for SIR in L.A. And one of the nights I was at the baked potato, I was introduced to Joey Brasler, who is uh, yeah. a good friend of Steve's mm-hmm. and was working for Andy Brower. And he said, well, what are you doing working for SIR? He goes, uh, <laughs> he goes, we need to get you over to Brower. And I said, what's Andy Brower's? And he told me what it was. And I was like, holy crap, this sounds really cool. You know, yeah. I get to do, you know, Luke's Cartage and Neil Steubenhaus and Dean Parks and um, did some stuff with Landau. Um, Tim Pierce came in eventually. Um, but Steve, uh, yeah, I mean, my day, you know, I'd come in at 10 o'clock in the morning and there'd be work orders sitting on the desk and it would say, uh, you know, Michael Jackson session, you know, record one, Lukather, um, downbeat noon, you know, and, and so I'd load up the truck with all his gear and I'd take it over and set it up and play through it and put a piece of gum out for him and, <laughs> you know, whatever. And then he'd show up and do the session. I'd come back, tear it all down. Um, but I mean, you know, there were several times I got calls from Steve, uh, you yeah. know, up at his house. This was a great one, though. I, I got to share this one. I don't think Steve would mind if I did. <laughs> <laughs> so I get a call, right, from Steve, right, and uh, and and I, I I get on the phone, and he goes, he goes, hey, hey man, I'm uh, I'm up at my house, and uh, you know, I'm playing my strat, man. It's buzzing real bad, you know, and, and my shit's fucked up, man. It sounds it doesn't sound right, and I, and I go, <laughs> and so I'm like, well. You want me to come up and take a look? You go, yeah, yeah, man. That'd be cool, man. I appreciate it. So I drive up to his house. I come inside. And he's sitting there on the couch with a stock Strat and a Fender Deluxe. And he's got his tube television turned on about four feet from him. Right? (laughs) Watching TV. Okay. And then the amp is going. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, see, man, it's making all this noise. You know, It's buzzing and everything. So I go over and I just turn his TV off and it just goes <laughs> and stops. And, and he just looked at me and goes, oh, geez, I feel like such an idiot now. You know, I can't believe I called you up here for that, man. You know, thanks, man. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. And, you know, there was another time that uh, a whole session got ground to a halt because something was wrong with his rig. And I drove down there and his wah-wah pedal was cocked on and, and halfway on. He's like, hey, man, my rig sounds all mid-rangey and weird, you know, and I walked over and I stepped on his wall up pedal and turned it off. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you know, that was, Steve was in such in his heyday at that point that yeah. I don't even think he was really, uh, you know, he was just used to come in, plug his guitar in and just, and go and for just it. Go, yeah. And cut and, and run, <laughs> you know. 
So uh, that's a pretty good impersonation. Yeah, it's very good. I thought it was Luke. I thought he. I thought he was here. Oh man, I love that dude, man. I'm, you know, he's we he's a dear friend. We're still we're still real close. We 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 uh, we keep in touch regularly. And yeah. um, the thing I love about Luke too is that's it, so great. Um, the guy is so. Um, I don't know if self-deprecating is the word, but mm, I, I, see I remember that. one time. Yeah. I remember one time being at uh, Bob Bradshaw's house. It was a, a New Year's Eve party, and uh, I got invited. And, and, and Luke and Landau were both there, right? And I and I go in, and I'm in the kitchen, and and I'm I'm talking to Steve, and and uh, you know, and and I started in fanning out on him, right? You know, man, that solo you played on that Christopher Cross record, and and you know this and that, and I started saying, "Listen." He looks at me and he goes, "Hey, man, shut the fuck up, man. We're here to celebrate New Year's Eve, man." He goes, "Don't tell me how great I am." He goes, "Man, the great ones out in the other room, man. Landau, he's the shit." And I just like, I'm like, "Yipe, yipe, yipe!" I feel so bad. I, I, yeah. I complimented Steve, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, but he meant it with he meant it with love. But you know what? He's still like that. He, oh, he, I know. You know, he he's he's humble. He's a very humble guy, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't. It's just, he likes to step on stage and do his thing, but it's not, you know, he kind of deflects the a lot of the adulation. You know, it's it, <laughs> you know, it's it's, well, it's always somebody else. Somebody else is better, and yeah, and and uh, I and I have told him time and time again that there's three guitar players that that absolutely shaped who I am at this point, uh-huh. um, and and the three biggies for me were were Luke. Jeff Beck and Eddie Van Halen, uh-huh. and he's always said, you know, I don't deserve to be in that right. trio. Yeah. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Everything I know about melodic playing, Absolutely. I got from Steve. Absolutely. Everybody gets so blinded by his technique and his shredding ability and his speed and chops, mm-hmm. but he's the most melodic guitar player. Yeah. When he sure. wants to be and lyrical, right? Um, just mind-blowing yeah mind-blowing absolutely well this is about you so let's let's get back to keith allen no doubt i know you're too humble i could talk about steve all day i know hey keith before we move on uh i think it's a good time to take a quick break and i want to play a track from that key craig album that we spoke about a few minutes ago and this is the project you and your brother created back in 2008 and this is a track called i hate heat from our guest today keith allen on Inside Music Cast. Thank you. 
So, you know, that gig with Andy Brower, though, that, that, that brought you some opportunity. As you know, you eventually uh, met Rick Springfield and you ended up going on a tour with him for a summer. And, and uh, was, that, was that your first major gig? Well, about a year prior to the Rick Springfield gig, and, and this was, I was just sharing this with someone the other day who was going through something um, seemingly really negative. Um, uh-huh. And I was trying to encourage them by saying, you know, sometimes you just don't know what something means until you get some hindsight and clarity on mm-hmm. it. And right. um, I was, uh, I wound up getting to audition for Olivia Newton-John's band. Ah, okay. And this was in 92. And so I went down, there was a cattle call of guys and there were all these great guitar players. And I went in and, and I played and, and I got the gig. And so I told Andy, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going on the road. I'm, I'm going to need to quit. Um, I went out and bought a bunch of guitars and Nashville tunings and all these different things to be able to do the, the Olivia gig. Uh-huh. Um, and then we started rehearsing and about a week into the rehearsals, um, you know, she had not come down yet. It was going to, we were going to rehearse for a week and then she was going to come. The, the, uh, the MD came in to the rehearsal and said, uh, Hey guys, um, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but, uh, Olivia has just been diagnosed with breast cancer. The oh, tour's canceled. Right around that. Yeah. And now of course, you know, I couldn't be upset about that and have a pity party in the, under the circumstances, um, because she was battling a, you know, a deadly disease. But still, it was it was devastating, a devastating blow to me, and I basically had to go beg for my job back and return all the guitars, and um, you know, be honest with you, it almost put my tail between my legs and made me want to just give up and go home. Um, but you know, I stuck it out, and actually, it was Tim Pierce who I had become good friends with because I was doing his cartage, and Tim was Rick's guitar player back in the heyday. And he said, hey, man, you know, Rick Springfield's looking for a guitar player. Um, would that be something you might be interested in? And I was like, of course. So I went down and auditioned for that gig and got that gig. And, yeah, it wound up being a summer a summer tour with Rick. And um, yeah. that, was, that, was the, that was the end of any day gig for me. Wow. Um, even after the Rick tour, I came back and I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm 100% dedicating myself to playing music for a living, whether that means whatever gigs that means taking or or sessions I could round up, but I'm done with doing anything other than having a guitar in my hands. And it was a little over a year later that I got the the call on the Chicago thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, talk to us a little bit about it. You know, how, how did that go down? Tell us about that. Well, here's how it went down. Um... Basically, like I just shared with you, for about that year, I was mm-hmm. I was not on the road, and I was taking any gig I could. I was playing in several different original band projects for no money, um, but that you know that I thought were good artists that uh, had good songs, and right. uh, one of them was a guy named Joe Pasquale who was uh, can't remember the name. He was in a boy band. It was a duo. He had a voice very much like George Michael, but he put this band together and it was almost like an Eagles type um, throwback thing. Lots of huge, long arrangements, big magnanimous guitar solos. There was a song we did called money or your life that had like a, I mean, it's like a three minute guitar solo. And, and that gig kind of whipped me into shape. I like to say that that prepared me for 25 or six to four. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> really? up to that point, I was, you know, an eight-bar guitar solo was about all I ever did, you know. Yeah. Like you play like a nice little melodic thing or a little burn for a second, and then the solo's over. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm playing these, you know, three-minute magnum opuses uh, guitar solos and, and, uh, and having to have a lot to say on the guitar. Um, and then this other band I was in was more kind of an alternative thing with an artist named David Grow. Um, that was with my buddy Lance on bass and a drummer named Sergio Gonzalez on drums. Okay. And we were rehearsing David's material at third encore. Okay. And that's a big rehearsal studio in LA. Well, Chicago was three doors down in the, in the facility doing pre-production for their big band record which they were getting ready to go in and record. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is in 1994. Yep, yep. And uh, Jason Chef was friends with Sergio, our drummer. Okay. So they were on break, and Jason popped his head in and listened to us for a couple songs. Yeah. Said hi to Sergio, and I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, it's Jason Chef. He plays with Chicago. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so I went over, and I inter introduced myself. I said, hey, and I just jokingly said to him, I said, hey, man, you know, if you guys are ever looking for a guitar player, I'm, uh, you know, I'm free. I'm looking for work. And he kind of, you know, he laughed and kind of went, yeah, yeah, man. All right, cool. And, and he left. And so about three months later, um, you know, I was looking for, looking for the next gig. Yeah. And I was making phone calls like you do when you're looking for work to anybody I could think of. Sure. One of the phone calls I made was to my buddy Dave Friedman, uh -huh. who you may now know as Friedman Amplification. He gotcha. builds all these incredible boutique amps. Okay, yeah. But but at the time, Dave was building racks to the to the stars. He was he was Bob Bradshaw's direct competition, basically. Oh, okay. All right. But yeah. I'd known I'd known Dave all the way back to the Brower days. Okay. And so Dave and I were good buddies, and I just said, Dave. You work down there, your shop's at Third Encore. If you ever hear about any auditions going on or anything happening, call me. And like a week later, he called me and said, dude, Chicago is down here auditioning guitar players today. And I went, today? <laughs> and he goes, he goes, yeah, they're starting to show up now. Yep. And he said, I think they're here for two days. They got like eight guys they're auditioning. And it's a closed audition. And if I can tell you, Everything in me was telling me, hang up my phone, pour a cup of coffee, turn on the young and the restless, and wait for the next opportunity. Right. Because, right. you know, yeah. it, it was a closed audition. Yep. It was happening now. And how are you going to get in? <laughs> not in a week, not, not you know, exactly. not in three days, but like now, right? So the only thing I had to grab a hold of was that I met Jason once. And I think he heard me play. So <laughs> whether he was paying attention or not, right? right so right. You know, at the time, I was really kind of getting into the Tony Robbins thing, you know, and yeah. reading the Tony Robbins books and listening to his tapes. And, you know, and his whole thing was, you know, take action, take action, take action. You know, pick up the phone, call people, you know. You can't get discovered sitting in your bedroom. So I threw all my shit in my car my four by 12 sticking out of my hatchback mushroom, a mushroom Mustang. <clears throat> I don't know where that came from. I'm still thinking about, thinking about drugs for me. <laughs> so I got a, I got a cable tied my, my 
trunk down, holding my four by twelves in place. I drove down there, and and nobody was there yet. I actually went in and walked into the rehearsal room. I could I could hear him, you know, making noise in there. And, and Hank Steiger, who became uh, and rest in peace, Hank passed away several years ago, but um, who became my guitar tech was in there setting up. And Hank was this cantankerous old, you know, real like roadie. It's not a tech like we call him today. Hank was an old school, uh, you know, he had been with the band since probably 71. Right, right. You know, he was Terry Kath's tech. He was the guy behind holding the amp up like Hendrix's tech did when Terry would jam the neck of the guitar into the face of the speaker cabinets. And, you know, so, you know, Hank had been there, done that, seen everything. And I come in and I'm like this little happy-go-lucky kid from Virginia. And I'm like, hey, I hear Chicago's auditioning guitar players players today. And he kind of looks at me and goes, who the fuck are you? (laughs) It's like, "Uh, my name's Keith. I'm a guitar player. I heard that. And he goes, it's a closed audition, man. We got eight guys coming in, and you know. And he showed me the list. See, the thing about Hank was that, that I didn't even catch at first was the guy's got a heart of gold. He's the sweetest guy you ever want to meet, and he would do anything for you. But his exterior shell is very cranky, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> stay out of my area, and don't touch my shit, and. Which was great when he works for you, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but but basically, he said uh, he said, well, you know, after he gave me the you know get out of here thing, he said, well, you might you might call HK management, and talk to Melinda Ramirez, and uh, see what what she says. So I called Melinda, and Melinda says, you know, who the hell are you, and why are you calling me? These are closed auditions. No, we won't listen to yada yada yada. So I've been rejected. So I go back out in the parking lot, and I'm sitting in my car. Hank had told me what songs they were they were doing. So I had my Chicago CDs in the car, and I started shedding tunes in my car while I was waiting <laughs> for somebody to show up. And then one by one, the guys started showing up. And I'm sitting there, and I go, oh, my God, there goes Robert Lamb. I can't talk to him. There goes Jimmy Pankow. I can't talk to him. Walt Parazator pulls in. I can't talk to him. You know, Lee, Tris. Actually, Tris, I got out and I go, Tris. I go, uh, my name's Keith. Do you, do you remember me? I met you uh, one time I was doing Luke's Cartage because I had done a, a lobotomies gig that Tris played on. Oh, God. wow. Okay. And, and, and it set, and let me tell you that story too. It's the funniest Luke story ever. <laughs> but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> so I had done this lobotomies gig with, with, with them and, I, and, I, and Tris looked at me and I smoked a cigarette and he just kind of looked at me and he goes, yeah, buddy. Sorry, man. I I don't I don't remember you, and you know it's not my call anyway. But good luck. And he goes in. So you know I'm just like going. Oh my God, I'm getting shot down. So anyway, everybody shows up. Last guy show up is Jason. I got out of my car and I go, Jason, please tell me you remember me. I was in David Groh's band with Sergio. You saw us about three months ago. And he goes, I vaguely remember something about that. And he goes, Man, I, I I'd like to say it's a big you know, possibility, but he said, let me see what I can do. Give me your number. Let me see. So he wound up talking the guys into, um, listening to me because he did remember that I sounded good. 
Um, ironically enough, he actually couldn't remember which of the two guitar players playing that day that he remembered liking. <laughs> so he, so he actually found out who from Sergio, who the other guy was and got him in too. Oh, um, so they wound up actually listening to both of us that were in that room that day. But I was the last guy on the last day, and I played through six tunes, um, did a couple acapella vocal things that Bill, Bill Champlin signed off on. And they went out in the hall and had a meeting and came right back in and offered me the gig on the spot. Wow. Um, and <laughs> wow. I, you know, and, and, you know, the guys that auditioned for this thing were like, you know, pedigrees a mile long. Sure. You know, they played with Don Henley and Mick Jagger and all these different people. And I was just like, you know, well, I did three months with Rick Springfield. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> all I had to show for it. <laughs> and uh, I was at that, that was pre-cell phone days. Right. And there was a, there was a payphone in the hallway of Third Encore that was, that was all like uh, coded in, um, it looked like a big road case. And I wound up in that thing for like three hours after everybody had left. I was calling everybody I knew, my brother, my parents, my nobody believed me. Yeah. You know, I just got the yeah. gig with Chicago. <laughs> it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. Okay. Tell us the truth. <laughs> you know, because, you know, it, to my parents and my brother, that's like the penultimate gig I could have landed with, sure. maybe the exception of replacing Lukather and Toto or Van Halen and Van Halen. <laughs> right. Which, uh, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> well, well, I was thinking about your parents because, you know, this whole time when you left for L.A., in my mind, I'm thinking, man, what did your parents think? I mean, he's out. I'm like, is he nuts? I mean, he's got a computer science degree and he's heading to, out of L.A. And all of a sudden with this phone call, like, you're bona fide. You know what I mean? I mean, it must, oh, yeah, it must have changed everything. Yeah, it did, you know. And, and But you know what? They were nothing but supportive of me wanting to chase, mm -hmm. you know, my dream. If they had been... Um, really hammering me to yeah. to go into business. I don't know. I don't know if I would have had the intestinal yeah. fortitude to yeah, yeah. to go out there and you know eat ramen noodles and live out of a, <laughs> the back of my car like some guys do. Right. I mean, they were they were kind of bankrolling a lot of my. They bankrolled the school and, yeah, and yeah. you know kind of kept me. You know, I worked, but they supplemented what I was making yeah. to yeah. keep chasing you. that thing. Amazing. So, hey, Keith, when you first got that gig, you know, how carefully did you perceive those parts that you were playing in respect to Terry Kath and, of course, some of the other guitarists that came after Terry and, and prior to you? I mean, were you conscientious about making sure you were emulating Terry or did you do it your own way with those classic parts in mind? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, and here was always my – this was always my thinking when I went into audition for a gig. And remember, I auditioned for Olivia's gig. Yeah. I got the gig. I yeah. auditioned for Rick. I got the gig. I auditioned for Patty Smythe's band. I got the gig. Only gig I didn't get was Tom Jones that I auditioned for. And the okay. reason was it was a, yeah, you had to read charts and do it in front of a, a stationary video camera with no band. So you just had to sit there and read charts and play <laughs> in front of a camera. And wow. I was a terrible, I skipped every reading class at, at, GIT, you know, because I was too too hungover from being at the baked potato the night before. So, um, but so yeah, I didn't get that gig. But my my philosophy always was learn the parts uh, as as faithfully to the original to the recordings as you can. Right. 
and reproduce them. And then if the artist wants to let you take some free reign, then you can start sure. yeah. screwing around. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I got Olivia's gig, because uh, John, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, Farrar, Farah, um, the guy who produced a lot of her records and played a lot of the guitars on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Please, Mr. Please, this acoustic part that was a yeah. Nashville tuning, sure, and right. it was yeah. it was this bizarre part that he came up with. Uh-huh. Um, and I played it correct, and everybody else played a facsimile of it in standard tuning, and he came over to me and he said, you're the only guy that actually dissected it to the point that, you know, where you had it exactly correct. Right. And that's what he wanted. And that was, that's what they wanted. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. So on the Chicago thing, you know, did I learn Terry Cass' solo on 25 or 64 note for note? No. No, I didn't. Right. Nor do I really know if I could have and reproduced it. It's such a piece of work. But, you know, I did mm-hmm. take the first, you know, the the first eight bars that are so, um, you know, textbook and learned those. And then I, I launched off from there. Um, the solo I played on you're the inspiration was mine because there isn't one on the record. Um, hard to say, I'm sorry. I copped Luke solo note for note because I feel like it's such a lyrical trademark solo. It's a melody. It's part of the song. Um, so, you know, and all the rhythm parts I dug in deep for. And that, and I think that was also one of the things that kind of turned their head was that, uh, you know, I was sort of faithfully grabbing a lot of Terry's rhythm parts, you know, which like, uh, you know, Dwayne Bailey, who was before me, phenomenal guitar player, but, but he was kind of his own man and was, was kind of doing the thing, you know, playing the gig his way, um, you know, which I appreciated because I right. love guitar players and I thought he was an amazing guitar player, but mm-hmm. I was trying to stay more faithful to the, what the music was asking yeah, for, you yeah. know? So Keith, you know, so you get the gig and you're starting to rehearse with him. I mean, what was the time frame between, uh, uh, settling you in and gaining their confidence and because they're, they're scoping you out, you know, you know, they've, they've seen you and they've heard you and they've chosen you. And uh, tell us about the the first couple months of the testing grounds, if you would. Was that was that tenuous in in gaining confidence <laughs> as to what they're looking? Because that must have been a really, you know what I mean. You're still gaining your stride with them, right? Well, think about this for a minute. So, the the band I play six songs with them. They offer me the gig, and 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 now I've come to realize that this is this is the way these guys operate, right? You know, so they all they all say, you know, okay, great. So uh, I'll see everybody in March, right? And it's January, and I'm going like March. We don't have anything until March, (laughs) you know. So I I got to kind of go home and sit for a month and go like, did this just happen? Right? Am I? Is this really going to happen? Am I really going to play with these guys? Yeah, yeah. And then um, they booked a week of rehearsals prior to this March run we were going to do, and the first gig was a corporate in Palm Springs, and then. The following, I think, three nights were at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. And uh, so we go into rehearsal, Mm -hmm. and we run the show, top to bottom, two-hour show. And at the end of running the show once, uh, the guys all look at each other and go, sounds good to me, I don't know, see you in Palm Springs? And I'm like, uh, Uh, that's it? I like, guys, uh, I can't. Can we run at least one more time? <laughs> at least one more time through the set, you know. 
And they were like, I don't know, it sounded pretty good to us, but if you want to, okay. And they booked a week, right, thinking okay. that they were going to have to whip me into shape. And so I came in prepared, <laughs> but I wasn't prepared for them to say, you get to play the songs once and then do it in, you know, with live bullets. Now. Right, so, right. You so nailed it. We, you nailed it. You know, so we did play the show down twice. <laughs> a week off, first gig was in Palm Springs in front of like 50 people. I'm not kidding you. It Seriously? Was a, it was a corporate. It was in a ballroom. It was a small company. Um, everybody's in suits. Uh-huh. And like when the gig was over, uh, I think I said to Jason, I go, so is this what the band's doing these days? You know, like, cause all of a sudden I, thought, <laughs> I got this gig. They're like, we're playing to like 50 people. Really? You know, so I had no clue. And then the next show was at Caesar's palace and it was sold out and it yeah. was, you know, whatever, 1200 people in the thing. And then in the summer we got into the big sheds and, you know, playing all the, the big venues yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff. And so it, it, it was, um, but you know what? Um, you know, the big knock on me uh, when I first came into the band, you know, and and the fans, of course, anytime you replace anybody in a band, they're going to compare you to the guy that, that, that you replaced. Yeah. Right? And so the big knock on me was, was that I was too mild-mannered on stage. I didn't wear spandex and I didn't jump around enough. <laughs> you know, nobody really was critical of my playing. You know, everybody said I thought I played good. I sang fine, um, but you know, he doesn't jump around like Dwayne. Yeah, you know, he doesn't. He doesn't smash his guitar during the end of Inspiration like Dwayne did. <laughs> you know, and it's like it's actually kind of weird. I found myself trying to like play more pyrotechnically all of a sudden when sure. I started reading yeah. reading what people were saying I started throwing more tapping and stuff into my playing and then I, then I realized you know what, what am I doing yeah because nobody's as sensitive as the new guy I mean obviously you're you're trying to <laughs> you know what I mean you're, you're the most sensitive yeah. guy in the band at that point and that's not what they hired me to do they right. hired me because they wanted they didn't want me to do what the previous guy right, did right right you know so then I tried I sort of readjusted and went back to you know, actually, one of the fan club presidents quit after he saw me for the first time. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, no, no. I'm I hate this band. We, 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 we came backstage, right? Uh-huh. And and here is this 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 guy who's like president of the fan club, and and he's looking at me, and I go, "Well, hey, hey guys, how'd I do?" And he looked at me and he goes, "You did okay." And I was just like, I was like, "Oh my god, the fan club president hates me." He quit, but you know he was a he was a he was a Dwayne Bailey fan first. Oh my god! A Chicago fan second. Uh huh. I see. I see. And then slowly but surely, you know, know, people started showing up with. uh, I still have one out in my garage rolled up. Somebody showed up with a big sign that said <laughs> kick-ass Keith on it and held it up, you know. Oh, it was like yeah. a mild, it was a mild version of like the Sammy Hager replacing David Lee Roth, you know, sure. Dave who thing, you know. <laughs> I got a little bit of that and the fans warmed up to me. Yeah. Apparently the guys thought I did a good job because I'm, I'm the longest tenured guitar player with Chicago That's by exactly. a mile. That's true. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, so, so when was it, uh, how long did it take for you to, begin to notice that uh, it's about musicianship, but also you've got huge crowds in front and you've got to entertain now. Or what, how, how did you grow into that? Because, you know, they look at you guys. You guys have such a great show 
that uh, how, yeah. long, how long did it take for you to evolve into into that, you know? Well, I think I'm still evolving into that, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. I'm, I'm, I'm one of these guys that I still have to, like, talk myself pre-show. I'm talking myself, you know, remember to remember to look at the audience, remember yeah. to, you know, because I, I just, you know, I grew up that, 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 that playing music was playing music and that's, that's what you do. And, you know, and I can, I can get so caught up in the moment and zone out on my guitar neck, you know, where I just find myself zoning out and staring at my guitar neck and playing, you know, and then all of a sudden I go, you know, Hey, wake up, <laughs> you know, pay attention. Yeah, yeah. I remember hearing though, like, um, I remember reading one time that in the early days with Van Halen, that uh, Eddie was would just stand there and play. He 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 was did not he was not a showman. That's funny. Alex used yeah. to throw like beer bottles at him to get him to like snap out of it. <laughs> you know, in in the really really early days of the band, and of course David Lee Roth I think had a lot to do with you know dress like this, move like this, kick your leg like that, jump like this. You know, I think there was a big you know, influence there. And fortunately that's not what Chicago does. Yeah. yeah, Um, you know, but yeah, I've developed into whatever my stage presence is, what, you know, I certainly, I'll never be Jimmy Pankow on stage. (laughs) (laughs) There's only one Jimmy Pankow. (laughs) There is only one Jimmy and there's, and there is absolutely only one Jimmy in this band. Yeah, exactly. And if anybody else tried to be Jimmy, they'd be laughed off the stage. Jimmy's the only one that can do Jimmy and, and be believable and, and sell it, you know? Everybody loves Jimmy. They do. Yeah. You need a bigger collection of sleeveless T-shirts, too. I know exactly. I have that. I have that. I was always the sleeveless guy. Matter of fact, when they did put us, they animated us and put us in, um, was it Family Guy? There was a one oh, yeah. of these cartoons. I can't remember whether it was Family Guy. It was It was something, and Jimmy and I were both in sleeveless shirts. I have that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> although, although when I turned fifty, my wife told me, "That's it, no more sleeveless shirts." No more. Get those things on, buddy. <laughs> yeah, she 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 forbid me to ever wear sleeveless again, which I I sometimes still um, do just to piss her off. <laughs> hey, Keith and Eddie, let's stop for a second because I want to check out a track from a project that Keith is involved with that includes. Ed Toth, the drummer for the Doobies, as well as bassist and vocalist John Cowan, also from the Doobies. And this is a group called Button. And we're really looking forward to hearing uh, more from this album when it lands. But for now, we've got a preview track here called Three Minute Egg that includes some blistering guitar work, of course, from our guest today, Keith Howland on Inside Music Cast. Strings attached 
Just thinking about your shows here for a second, um, you know, obviously you've been in the band for 23, 24 years, and like you mentioned a second ago, and um, tell me about some tracks that you guys play that I guess from a band perspective or, or maybe you're most musically complex, not necessarily from from your perspective, from, but from the band's perspective. What are what are a couple of songs that, you know, that you guys yeah. perform that are, that are I don't know, the, challenging. the tougher ones, the yeah. Ch- yeah, the more challenging ones? Well, you know what? What's so great about the the Chicago book, as you would call it, mm-hmm. um, all of it is 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 pretty pretty challenging sure. and interesting. Yeah. And um, this band is is very very loose as far as um, as long as you're literally not you know disrespecting the music, you're free to kind of you know. Sometimes I see people online saying things like you know. Well, I can tell that the the founding four are are sort of keeping you, you know, in a box and not letting you do. And it's like, no, if anybody's keeping me in a box, it's me. <laughs> you know, meaning meaning, you know, I'm I'm free to do whatever I want and sure. you know, in, in my solos and when I get features and things like that. It's 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 uh it's welcome, you know, and that's what this ba- band was founded on. So, you know, as far as more kind of intricate pieces the whole you know ballet for a girl from buchanan that whole sure. suite of yeah. of music is always you know makes you think uh stay on your toes a little bit but um you know it's all as you guys know too you know it's all about um it's not just about performing technically difficult things though it's right it's playing in the pocket yep. and having a good groove and absolutely and you know and right now the band is just the groove is deeper than, I mean, it's 
ridiculous that's nice yeah. what what's happening the synergy in the band right now but um that's good oh please 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 before before we move on let me share this other the other luke story please. Oh, yeah, that's right oh yeah yeah i so, had it in mind um, i was going to remind um, you <laughs> at the so los lobotomies is playing at the palomino okay i don't know if you've ever been to the palomino it's this uh sure, I have. it's this kind of kind of a country western bar yep. in in la right yeah yeah and and uh, so it's 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 lobotomies and and yeah. Tris was playing drums on this particular gig right, so I go down and set Steve's gear up, and I can't remember why, but Steve showed up early. Uh, we wanted to play through his rig and everything, so so the place is empty. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon. There's like there's like two guys playing pool at the bar across the across the room. And the jukebox is blaring, you know, Merle Haggard or or something, right? <laughs> and and Luke plugs in and just starts shredding at like warp volume, right? I mean, my eyes are blurring from how loud he's playing, and he's just, you know, hair's flying. His hair was jet black and long back then, you know, and he's he's head banging and <laughs> just ripping, and <laughs> and this drunk guy. Uh, at the bar or at the pool table, puts his pool cue down, pool cue down, and sort of stumbles over to the stage, and stands there, kind of just staring at him while he's just shredding. And finally, Steve kind of notices him out of the corner of his eye, and he stops playing and he looks up and he goes, "Hey, buddy, what's happening?" And the guy goes, "What kind of music do you play?" Luke looks at him and goes, "Country music," and he just starts. <laughs> not missing a beat country music and then he just starts shredding again guy just, guy just walks away just with this like dumbfounded look on his face i remember that just dropped me it's so him That's i mean funny. he didn't even not a second no pause to reply <laughs> and music. start shredding again it's just the guy is just witty is he is and and i've told him and i other people know this too but if he if he wasn't a musician he'd definitely be a comedian because he just he's (laughs) so funny just i love chatting with him because he's so funny (laughs) yeah the those those baked potato gigs were half andrew dice clay and half music you know know. steve with steve on the microphone it was uh it was crazy stuff yeah amazing Hey, Keith, congratulations are in line here. You guys, uh, Chicago is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. That that. was uh, another awesome experience, another bucket list thing. Yeah, it is, man. I tell you, you guys very much deserve it. Probably a little long overdue, but I tell you. It, uh, and you guys keep on going. So, um, you know, tell us about, um, you know, walking away with the awards and you're in there and, and, uh, I mean, you're looking at each other and saying, Hey, let's keep on going. I mean, this is, you're not resting on your laurels too much, are you? Nah, if anything, these guys just, uh, they're, 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 they're really, really just about moving forward and not looking back. They, they've always been that way. Um, they never want to just sort of, you know what I mean? It's just, it's yeah, just, yeah. you know, people keep asking, you know, why did it take so long to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and 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 why didn't why, why weren't you more upset about it? You know, and the guys are always said, you know, we just, you know, people still come to see us play, and we're doing yeah. well, and we're working, and and we're making music, and we're doing what we love, so we just kept 
kept doing what we're doing and they eventually came around and put us in mm-hmm. so great you know we went and played the thing and got the award and you know, we're just going to keep doing what we do you know it's not like that's a you know time to retire we got yeah. the rock and roll hall of fame right right <laughs> you know or or hey it's the 50th anniversary it's time to retire <laughs> if anything you guys are just kind of like you know and i heard robert lamb say uh, at one point that he 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 basically wants to be like uh was it picasso that passed away while he was painting yeah, he was one yeah. of them one of the great <laughs> right. painters you know he said i want to just keel over on stage yeah you doing what i love to do yeah hey keith tell us uh we have a lot of obviously a lot of guitarists that are listening so let's get technical a little bit you know tell us about your your rig setup and has it changed over the years what what guitars are you playing right now and uh you know, tell us a little bit about uh, the rig. Okay. Well, here's the deal. For the last 20 plus years, mm-hmm. I've basically played through the same rig. Really? There's a Bob Bradshaw, Bob Bradshaw design rig. Of course, I was, you know, trying to be Steve when I was in LA. So <laughs> I had Bob, I had Bob put a rig together for me. Oh. Funny story about that is, um, this was long before I had the Chicago gig, right? So, I set up an appointment with Bob to to go consult with him to put a rig together for me, right? So I I uh, called him and and he uh, set up an appointment with me and he told me where his shop was. So I get in the car and I'm driving down Magnolia Boulevard and I'm looking for a sign that says Custom Audio Electronics, you know Bob Bradshaw here, you know, thinking it's like a storefront. Yeah, of course. There was no sign. <laughs> you know, Bob's shop was was in a building unmarked, and you had to go around back and ring the bell and pull into the parking lot. Right. And, you know, he didn't want everybody to know that yeah. $30 million worth of guitar rigs were in there exactly. and, and stuff like that. So I'm late, and I'm freaking out. Oh, my God, I'm going to be late to Bob Bradshaw's appointment. You know, I'm never going to work in this town again. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking like that. And so finally, you know, I call him on the phone. He's like, "No, nah, man, I don't, I don't have a storefront. You just come around the back." And so I went in anyway. So Bob and I designed this rig that we was going to build for me. So in a couple of weeks, he's got the rig ready, and I come down and I, 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 I plug into the rig and I, I, I go, "All right, so like, uh, well, you know, what presets did you, did you put in for me?" And he like looked at me like I was crazy. Like I thought, I thought it was going to be like, "Well, here's, here's Landau's, uh, you know." Um, ethereal you know reverb soaked uh chord swell thing and here's luke's uh h3000 harmonizer setting on a solo sound and of course nothing was programmed it was just wired up and ready for me to put my sounds in it right i'm like well where's all the (laughs) says you know hey man i don't program it for you you gotta do that you know i thought i thought it was gonna be I thought it was going to be Lukather in a box. Right, right. But, uh, but no. So anyway, but that was the rig I used for up until about a year and a half ago. And yeah. um, um, mainly the, the brain of it was a, um, a Bruce Egnator uh, four-channel preamp that um, it was one of the original ones that he and Dave Friedman designed together mm-hmm. um, that he built out of his garage. It was a custom custom preamp real real marshall and fender uh-huh. sounds uh vht power amp um you know i've had different effects in the i've always used um stomp box effects uh mxr phase 90 a dynacomp uh, mm-hmm. tube screamer um 
you know, I've got a bit of a phase shifter um, overdose going on at times. It's like I can't not have it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 the phase 90 was Eddie's thing, and, and, and Terry used a phase shifter a lot on his sound, so yeah, I do true. too. But, um, but uh, you know what I'm playing through now, believe it or not? And I never, ever in a million years thought that the technology would ever get to this point where it would make me do it. Uh, I'm playing through a fractal audio axe effects. Really? It's really? a, it's a two, two rack space, uh-huh. everything in a box, wow. two XLR cables into the front of house. And <laughs> it literally has, you know, I was the last one kicking and screaming and it, and it was only through uh, being forced to use it when we did a tour of uh, Asia earlier this year. Mm-hmm. You need um, the condense, yeah. Well, yeah, they were like, well, yeah, we're going to rent backline. We're not going to send all our backline over sure. there. And so can't send your rig. And I'm thinking, like, how am I going to program all these sounds and bring them over there and, you know, use a couple of rented marshals or maybe I'll take pedals. And so then I was like, well, you know what? I'll get an axe effects. They're supposed to be pretty cool. Yeah. And I'll program it to try to replicate all the sounds in my rig. So I did that, and we went to Japan. And about three shows in, I realized that using the in-ear monitors that we use, that I had forgotten that I wasn't playing through my rig. <laughs> wow. You know, wow. I had literally programmed it so accurately wow. that and was using the same. So psychologically, I had the same pedal board on the floor in front of me that I use with my Bradshaw. Yeah. So... I didn't have anything visual telling me anything different. It was only auditory in my ears. And I suddenly I'm going, all right, so maybe, you know, when I get home and I go back to the real thing, uh, it's going to blow my mind and I'm going to be like, yeah, okay, maybe I just got used to that. I went back, plugged in the real rig, listened to it in the in, in the in-ears and kind of went, geez, I'm like, some of the sounds I don't like as much couple of them maybe a tiny bit better but i think i can fix that and then it just became a matter of you know reliability Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you know so yeah so i bought a second one loaded it with all the same sound so we've got a backup there my rig started breaking down after bouncing around in the truck yeah sure um tubes are blowing and power amps blowing fuses and some of the effects units would shut down on me and so I went from that Bradshaw rig to an Axe Effects. And, wow. and, 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 you know, when I play a gig in a club or somewhere where I don't have in-ears and I'm using wedges and, you know, I want to hear that air move, I'm all about tube amps and sure. my rig. And yeah. it actually allowed me to bring my Bradshaw home, <laughs> to wow. be honest with you, which is, which is kind of fun. But, That's uh, cool. That's but man, things. what a great box. And it, you know, it's... Uh, it's great. And the guitars really haven't changed over the years. I use Tom Anderson custom strats. I mm-hmm. use Jim Tyler custom strats. Um, and then I have uh, a handful of uh, fenders that, um, of all people, Joey Brasler, who was the guy that got me to work for Andy Brower, who now works for Fender, got, got into my hands some new, uh, new Fender stuff. And um, I'm loving that too. Matter of fact, one of them is a Tele custom with uh, – with humbuckers in it and it's very very wow. cath like you know yeah. i'm finding i'm finding sounds in that guitar that are a lot closer to like terry's tones sure a little um, bite in there yeah yeah that telly thing yeah and mm-hmm. it, so that's that's really been a cool thing 
And this episode of Inside Music Cast has been brought to you by everyone Keith just mentioned. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. I love it. That's great. We we spoke about Tris uh, a few minutes ago, but I want to dive into that project that you guys combined on back in 2001, the Howland and Bowden project. And I love that album. It's such a great, great. you know, combination of things. It's it's everything from Latin jazz to funk fusion and straight up prog rock. And and tell us how you developed this project. You know, was it, did you do it in the studio? I mean, tell us how that all came together, especially with your busy schedule with Chicago. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, um, interestingly enough, you know, at the time, Tris was playing in a band called Cecilia Noel and the Wild Clams. I, yeah, Cecilia okay, Noel. You're, you're aware of Cecilia's stuff, right? Which is Latin funk. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and Tris was a drummer in that band. Yeah. Um, and I did a few gigs with him. And, you know, that was a cool thing. And so that was a little outside project. I played with Tris. And and um, and actually, I had a couple songs that I was uh, wanted to demo up for, for Chicago. Uh-huh. And, you know, I had just kind of got a studio set up in my house. Um, I had a old set of Yamaha recording series drums that I brought from, I had bought from my brother. So I had them set up and mic'd. And, um, so I called Tris and I had him come over and play on a couple of, couple demos with me. And while he was there, I had this one song that I had written that was sort of an instrumental thing. I kind of was looking at it as kind of a Jeff Becky kind of, kind of thing and so mm-hmm. i said well why don't we take a wag of this thing and that was the song fallen in a hole on the howland and Bowden project yeah, that cool. that is the track we cut that day hmm. so that came out so well um that we were kind of going wow you know this really came out cool um my buddy lance played bass on it and you know i overdubbed some stuff and we were like wow this really came kind of came out cool and i said why don't we make a record together and just do more like this yeah and so he was like great so i started writing more material and most of it we cut just guitar and drums live just me and tris oh cool really and then we would overdub bass and keyboards and whatever whatever yeah. else and i'd add more guitars but but the stuff was really organic in the sense that it was you know, Tris and I playing together. A couple of things we tracked, um, probably one of my favorite tracks on the record. It's called Sharp Funk 5. Yeah, right? that's an yeah. awesome track. Um, yep. That was the trio, Lance, Tris, and I, completely live. The whole guitar track was live. The solos live. Everything was live. Yeah. And then Babco came in and played on it, and he's such a, a freak that Isn't it sounds amazing? like. <laughs> yeah. He sounds like he was in the room with us when we cut Right. Him. Yeah, he's yeah. amazing. You oh know what? I'll tell you quickly about Babco. I, I got to sit in the studio with Steve Lukather when he was recording his Ever-Changing Times album. And yeah. the day the day I was there, the couple days I was there, he had Babco there in the studio. And he had, he had to track all nine – he had to lay down parts for all nine uh, songs. And uh, he knocked it out before I. He only took about six hours, and he knocked out all the tracks. He was Jeez. done. And he was out of there. I know. <laughs> He's it's, incredible. And you want to know? You want to know something funny about Babco too? That's so. That's so cool. I had played with him once with uh, Cecilia Noel's band, right? Mm-hmm. And he was just this kid. I mean, who was playing like this crazy solo across from me on stage with a wah wah pedal hooked up to his electric piano. Uh-huh. You know, I was like. Well, who is this guy, you know? Right, exactly. And um, so Tris was Tris was the one that was like, well, we should get Babco to play on a couple things. And I was yeah. like, okay, cool. Um, so, you know, I called Jeff, and, you know, Jeff's still pretty pretty new 
uh, at that point. I mean, this was 1999, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Jeff was just a kid. Yeah. Um, he comes over to my house with a, you know, I told him, yeah, you know, I'd love to get like a Rhodes thing on this, you know, and I thought for sure he was going to come over with like a, you know, a, 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 a synthesizer right. of some kind that he would get a Rhodes, sound like he? that, right? He came over with a suitcase Rhodes sticking a, out of the back of his pickup truck. <laughs> And carried it into my house. He wouldn't even let me help him. <laughs> he was like, he's like, oh no, man, I, I I got it down to a system. He's carrying like a three hundred pound suitcase Rhodes into my house, hooks it up, and then just pr- proceeds to just crush both yeah. tracks he played on. Oh my gosh! Um, you know, just you could see right there, even that young, that he was just um, so gifted, <laughs> oh, I know. I know. so, so gifted. talented. But, His dexterity is just amazing. This guy's got. Um, yeah, he's, Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and when I look back at making that record, you know, I was pretty, you know, I was only four years into the band. Um, and I was just kind of fearless about, I didn't really think about it of who we called. Yeah. You know, we asked everybody in Chicago to be a part of it. Everybody was on it with the exception of Walt who had, uh, some commitment and couldn't play on, we were going to have him play a flute solo on sharp punk five, but, uh, it actually wound up being Babco, so that was a, a fine trade-off. Um, but, you know, Steve Weingart, David Garfield, um, Mark Russo, uh trying to remember who else was on that record. Kevin Ricard played percussion. Jimmy Earl played on a couple tracks. I mean, we loaded that thing with, with bad dudes. And, um, yeah, it really came out great. It got a lot of uh, critical acclaim. Yeah. Um, I'm real proud of it. And, um, you know, and then we did, uh, I made a record with, um, Chris Pinnock. Um, the record was called HLMP, which is Howland, Log, Morrison and Pinnock, which was Matt Log, drummer, Matt Log, uh, Lance Morrison on bass, Chris Pinnock and myself, who I met Chris through our mutual friend, Hank Steiger, who was his tech and my tech. Okay. And I just happened to be talking to Hank one day and I said, man, whatever happened to Chris Pinnock? I love his playing. He goes, well, here's his phone number. Call him. <laughs> so I called him and got him on the phone and he's like, oh, hey, man, you know, and we started talking. I said, man, we ought to do something together. And like next day he was at my front door with his guitar. We started, we started tracking. Let's go. Immediately. <laughs> so that record, um, the green front one was, that was another one. It was all tracked live in my, at my house with the four of us. Um, very little overdubbing on that record. That was a really fun, and of course, then Babco came in and added yeah. him his touch to several things. Well, but speak, um, speaking of Babco, I mean, there was um, there's uh, the track "Your Old Thingy," and yep. uh, I mean that's smooth, man. That just got so much oh. groove on it, you know. And and uh, I mean, you guys must have really been unselfish to let a a keyboardist take the, you know, and that was Babco, right? Um, oh yeah! That took the lead solo. I mean, you know, he took it apart, man, and and uh, and then then you follow up with your um, just wonderful uh, guitar solo. I mean, they just blend so well. That's one of my favorite tracks. I mean, it's just got everything that somebody wants to to listen to, and uh, you know, yeah, and, that is a cool track, and um, you know, and we found too that that uh, interestingly enough, Sharp Funk Five, your yeah. old thingy. Uh, um, trying to remember which other tunes. Those two were really good live when we did them uh, at the Baked Potato too. 
um, we wound up releasing two two live records. One, yeah. one was Howlin' and Bowden Project, and one was the project with Chris Pinnock. Right. Um, and ironically enough, uh, they were back to back nights at the Baked Potato, and that was so intimidating for me. Really, to go play play the room yeah. that I had seen those guys playing mm-hmm. in, and have like <laughs> all these you know musical peers in front right. of me in the audience. It's, it's actually kind of hard for me to listen to these days because I can hear how nervous I was, um, you know what I mean? In the performance, but, uh, I think we captured some cool stuff though. Um, I also remember vividly the first song out of the gate with, when we were playing with, uh, when Chris was playing with me and, and I took the first solo and then Chris took the second solo. And I remember thinking to myself, good God, what have I gotten myself? (laughs) (laughs) Chris, you know, he comes from the John McLaughlin school of guitar playing. He's, he's, uh, very aggressive. Did he play on, I mean, you got some pretty much straight up sort of prog rock, uh, tracks on, on the, on the album too. Uh, I think cement mixer, don't wake the baby Friday 13th. And those are just like, Man, you guys go out on those things, man. And um, yeah, Friday the Thirteenth was definitely uh, my Los Lobotomies tribute. I was trying to write a like a Lobotomies kind of thing, and that's why we asked Garfield to come in and play on it. Yeah, you know. So that was definitely um, that was one of those. That's an amazing for project. Sure. You know, for our listeners, if you don't have this project, uh, get your hands on it. It's it's yeah. worthy worthy of the adding to the collection and. Uh, you can spend a few hours listening and yeah, being amazed. I'd say too. We um, pick, be sure to pick up the uh, uh, the Key Craig uh, album as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the one you did with your brother, you know, back in two thousand eight. Because that's that's a really nice piece. This is a really nice album as well. It's very nice. Hey Keith, uh, before we start to wrap up, uh, I happen to have the track Friday the Thirteenth uh, from the Howland and Bowden Live from the Baked Potato Project uh, from two thousand four. Uh, which also featured bassist Lance Morrison and past Inside Music cast guest Steve Weingart. So if you don't mind, let's uh, pause for a second and let's listen. And we'll come back and wrap things up. From our guest today, Keith Howland on Inside Music Cast.
And that was the track Friday the 13th from the Howland and Bowden Live from the Baked Potato Project from back in 2004. Yeah, it's cool. And one final thing that I do want to mention, which is pretty exciting. Um, I know if you, I don't know if you guys are aware that uh, that, that Jason, you know, decided to pursue some other, yeah, exactly, um, some other avenues after right. 30 years with the band, and we now have uh, a guy by the name of Jeff Coffee um, playing right. bass and yep. singing tenor vocals with us. Exactly. Um, yep. And. Jeff is absolutely crushing it. Yeah. Is he really? I mean, the the guy came in and just, I mean, you would think he's been playing with the band for twenty years. Yeah, <laughs> and and he he fits in that well, and everybody's wow. super comfortable with him. He's an incredible bass player. His pocket is deep, and his yeah. voice. I mean, there's not there's not a note the guy can't hit in full voice. It's it's ridiculous. Wow. But um, the way we found him. Um, was kind of wild. It's a it's a Nashville connection. Um, you you've heard of these, obviously. You've heard of these Nashville drummer jams. Sure. Yeah. Well, they were doing one. It was a tribute to Stuart Copeland. Okay. And John Cowan was down there to sing a couple of Sting things at the Stuart Copeland tribute. Well, Jeff Coffey, who's from Orlando, basically been out of music for almost ten years. He was just trying to get his feet wet, so he started coming up because he's good friends with a couple of the guys that round up that drummer jam. Mm-hmm. So he came up and was performing at the Stuart Copeland thing, and John heard him. Well, I called John because I knew Jason was was uh, you know looking to, initially looking just to sub to go home and deal with some family things, which eventually turned into him deciding he wanted to stay home permanently. But, but um, you know, he asked me, do you know anybody? And I, I, I called Cowan, and I said, you know, do you know any like bad motherfucker tenor bass players other than yourself? <laughs> you know, because obviously John's got a gig. That's an and, official uh, description, by the way. Exactly. That wasn't. The- yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> if, is that? I figured if Lukather's been on your show, that it, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, no, no worries. And fee way bells, so you're safe. The language is fine. It's fine, but but uh, basically, uh, John said, "Man, I just heard this guy. He's uh, out of Orlando. He's not really." not really doing anything right now he just came up and but he's he's a pure tenor voice and plays bass great and i called him and you know he was looking for you know to come up and maybe get a gig you know, as a sideman background singer bass player with a country act or something you know and i called him up and said how would you like to come audition for the uh, peter satara chair in chicago <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you, know? you put it like and, that. <laughs> and, well, and he came up and he came up and killed it. Yeah. God. Wow. Amazing. So uh anybody listening that hasn't seen the band in a while, you do yourself a favor and check it out. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. man. That's very cool. Well, we will see you then uh I think in July, I guess, when, when you're here in Indianapolis and yeah. uh I can't thank you enough for all the time you've given us oh, here. This has been a great chat. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Keith. No worries, guys. I, c- I could spend an hour alone talking about Steve. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll make that a separate a separate episode. Yeah, well, to be continued <laughs> right. this summer, right? <laughs> Keith Keith on Lukather. And we could do on Keith on Percaro, too. I, 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 I could talk about Jeff forever. Oh, oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. You know, he was, he was probably – almost more of a musical hero to me than than even any guitar player I can think of. There's just something there was something so beautiful about yeah his his musicality and his groove that just yeah. uh, it moved me. I don't think you're alone in that regard though cuz there's you know we've interviewed so many people who 
bring Jeff up and and talk about him in the same in that same spirit. So yeah, yep, absolutely amazing. Well, listen, guys, I'll uh, yeah, I'll let you go, and uh, we'll see you next time. All, All right. right, thanks so much. Take care now. All right, thanks, Bye-bye. guys. Bye. Bye. Special thanks to Keith Howland for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Scott Gross, Mikhail Ingstrom, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, Don Brightham, Yinka Oyelese, and Arnaud Legere for their support and content development. For the best in West Coast AOR, pop, jazz, and funk, tune in to Inside Music Cast Radio. Download the streaming app for Android and iOS devices, or listen at InsideMusicCast.com. Inside MusicCast is powered by Earshot Audio Post and Cabello Associates. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast and Inside MusicCast Radio. Inside MusicCast.